How many feel uh, that we've had a, a rich service this morning? I feel that we have accomplished what we needed to. There's always more, of course, that we can do in a service to honor God. But I think we've been intentional, and, and I have felt the presence of God. I feel joy. I, I feel renewed this morning, and I'm glad that I, I've been here. Amen. <laughs> I had no choice in a way, but I'm glad I'm here anyway. <laughs> uh, you know, this morning... I want to invite you to uh, uh, come with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 34. And um, I'm, I'm going to use a negative example to provide a positive teaching. I'm, I'm going to provide a negative example of how things should not be done when there is conflict, when we have conflict in the world, when we have been offended, uh, when we have been wounded by someone, and uh, there are two ways that uh, we can react to that, and I'm not going to get ahead of myself, uh, and what we, have, what, we, what we will see in this passage is how, how not to deal with offense and uh, more than an offense, a real wound um, something that really has damaged us and um, how we should not do things the way the world does them in the flesh and what the calling is of the scriptures to how we as Christians should uh, react when conflict comes our way. And I know that all of us can benefit from that, including the one who is doing the teaching this morning. I have been touched myself by, as I have considered this passage, I preached about this passage I discovered years ago, and probably very few of you have heard it, and if you're like me, I mean, I preached it, and I didn't remember that I had preached it myself, so I don't expect you to necessarily uh, have a remembrance of it, so it'll be like new probably for many, many of you, but really, in the times that we are living in, it is more relevant than definitely when I preached it uh, years ago. And again, it's uh, Genesis chapter 34. I'm not going to read the entire passage because it's very long, but I want to read the first verses just because uh, they will ground us in the reflection that I want to share with you this morning. Uh, verse 1, 34, chapter 34, says, Now Dinah, <clears throat> the daughter Leah, had born to Jacob. Leah was one of Jacob's wives. He had had this daughter named uh, Dinah. She went out to visit the women of the land. I guess she, you know, Saturday morning she got up and said, I'm going to go visit some of my girlfriends in town. And so she went maybe with another companion, maybe by herself, very innocently, not expecting anything important to happen in her life. She probably kissed her parents goodbye, and there she goes to visit some of her friends. Now, when, when Shechem son of Hamor, the Hivite, the ruler of that area. Now remember, these are um, Israeli, Jewish, uh, what, what would you call them, Israelites, living in this land where there's a lot of people who are not Israelites. They, they are hostile people, or at, where at best they tolerate each other. They live in kind of um, relative harmony with each other. So she went to visit some of her friends, and... Uh, Shechem, this young man, son of uh, the ruler of that area, saw Dinah, probably a very beautiful, attractive young woman, saw her, he took her and raped her, a terrible word. He took her and raped her. And here it says in verse 3, his heart was drawn to Dinah. Now, I would put a but here, because I believe that what may have happened was that this young man started with just a very fleshly, carnal, abusive desire for this young woman. He lets himself be overcome by lust, and he forces himself upon her. And I believe that afterwards, he was drawn to her more than just as a physical passion. He saw her beauty. Maybe something happened between them at that moment. And he saw the other side of this young woman, not just the, 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 the fleshly side. He saw this woman attracted him. She touched his heart. And that's why I would put, but his heart was drawn. What began as something animal-like 
morphed into something more complex and rich. His heart was drawn to Dinah, daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. Now, what does that mean that he spoke tenderly to her? Probably he consoled her. Maybe he apologized to her. Maybe he said, you know, I, 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 I've offended you grievously. I've really messed up with you. Uh, forgive me. And don't worry, you know, because she was probably afraid. I've been dishonored. My life is ruined. And uh, he, uh, he tells her, you know, hey, don't, don't worry about it. I'm going to make things right. Um, I want to marry you. I want to do the honorable thing. I want to restore your honor. So he spoke tenderly to her. And Shechem said to his father, Hamor, get me this girl as my wife. Now here's another element that I want to introduce into this whole narrative, which is you know, the abuse of women, the disregard for women that is uh, manifest in this story. You know, uh, Dinah, who is the, really the, the most important, probably, person in the entire narrative. She, her whole life has been damaged. And she's the one who has the right to be angry, to, to demand whatever, to, to uh, say yes or no to Shechem's um, uh, approach. Uh, but she doesn't figure in the story. That's one of the remarkable things. You know, and, and again, you know, the Bible, we're talking about a time at least 3,000 years from today, maybe 3,500, 3,200 years ago. I mean, these, this is a foreign species almost that we're talking about here. They're human, but I mean, you know, their culture, their customs, their values are completely foreign from us. And I think that's one of the things that we have to, when we read the Bible, we have to read it like anthropologists. You know, anthropologists are supposed to enter a culture and uh, divest themselves of their culture that they bring with them and observe uh, the culture that they are approaching with extreme neutrality and, and uh, respect almost and not try to project their values and their understandings of things into that culture. Now, we believe and I believe that through Christ and through the evolution of mankind, yes, we have we are so much, we have values that are so much higher in many ways. But in other ways, hey, I mean, we, we have killed millions and millions of people in all kinds of, um, you know, uh, uh, just gen gen general destruction and wars and genocide and so on and so forth. So, um, you know, we, we pride ourselves that we have evolved in many ways. But I tell you, I think if, if, if they took the net effect of the atrocities of those cultures of the past and our own atrocities of the modern world. I don't know that we would come out shining that much more. But in any case, I mean, it's 3,500 years ago, and women do not figure. Um, women are objects, really. Um, women are uh, instruments of um, government, uh, you know, as you marry people, uh, you know, kings used to marry their daughters and their, and their sons uh, for the advancement of their own national interests and so on and so forth. And, and so don't be scandalized. You know, in this passage, which is a, a, a biblical passage, there's no corrective regarding the treatment that uh, Dinah receives. But I think that the whole implication of the passage is definitely very critical of the whole thing. And uh, so um, it, it's, it impacts me that uh, Shechem says, get me this girl as my wife. I mean, you know, it's like, I don't know. I, I saw this toy uh, in the window, and, and I want it. Buy it for me. You know, she's just a pawn. She's, she's a, an object. That's all it is. And you don't know how. We're not, we're not told how she feels. We're not told of her tragic sense uh, and, and uh, the pain absolute pain that this young woman, the panic about her future and all kinds of stuff, we're not introduced into that area, into that dimension. We don't know whether she actually said, you know, okay, Shechem, I understand, you know, fine. I mean, you can imagine the wom a, woman, a young woman of that age and that sensibility perhaps reacting and saying, you know, yeah, uh, that's okay, but you want to marry me. I, 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 I want to marry you. As well, and, and uh, okay, let's bygones be bygones. I, I, I prefer to think 
that uh, in, in the light of her culture and her time, she probably uh, reacted positively to this young man. He's, he's the son of a chief. He, he has money. He has power. He has influence. Her whole life, uh, you know, can change possibly. Despite its horrible beginning, you know, this, this, is a, this could have represented a great opportunity for her as a young woman to get married and to enter into an illustrious family and so on and so forth. Um, and I, but unfortunately, we're not entered into that dimension of her psyche. We're just uh, left to imagine what she, because if we would have known how she felt, I think, you know, this could give us a lot more material to, to interpret this whole narrative. But no, we're not told that. He just says, you know, get me this girl as my wife. And we're assuming that he spoke to her, that she was willing to do it and get married to him. Because later on, by the way, we discover that um, she is living with him when he is killed by her brothers. So she never returned home. After this incident, she stayed home in the family of this young man and never went back home. How many days went by? We don't know. Was it days? Was it a week, two weeks? We don't know. But she's not returning home. She's staying with him as Women did when they were married. In this case, she wasn't married. She, was, she had a sexual uh, situation that was forced upon her. But she's at home with him and, and his family. So when Jacob heard that his daughter Dinah, verse 5, had been defiled, a strong word, his sons were in the fields with his livestock. So he did nothing about it until they came home. Then Shechem's father, Hamor, went out to talk with Jacob, father to father. Meanwhile, Jacob's sons had come in from the field as soon as they had heard what happened. They were shocked and furious because Shechem had done an outrageous thing in Israel by sleeping with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not be done. And I say amen, and we, we all do. Rape is, uh, is the most horrendous offense that a man can commit against a woman. It is a, an utter violation, not only of the body, but also of the psyche. And it should never be tolerated, condoned, uh, minimized in its impact. It is something that we abhor as believers. The abuse of a woman in any form or shape or of any human being is something that as believers, we, we, I mean, we repudiate in the most uh, dramatic of ways. Let, let that be clear. And the Bible is very clear about that as well. A thing that should not be done. And maybe that should be the title of the whole sermon. A thing that should not be done. Because everybody did something that he shouldn't have done here. Now, Hamor said to them, this is the father of Shechem. He, he comes to, to the whole family. My son Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. Please give her to him as his wife. Intermarry with us. Give us your daughters and take our daughters for yourselves. You can settle among us. The land is open to you. Live in it, trade in it, and acquire property in it. I mean, you know, if you project uh, 21st century values and, and uh, images into that, I mean, there's an opportunity for tribes and uh, you, you can project it into nations that are in enmity and tension with each other, all of a sudden here's a great opportunity for a major conference, a peace conference, from which may emerge um, great uh, covenants of uh, friendship, economic cooperation, mutual protection, all those things that nations uh, aspire to. Uh, all of a sudden, money that has been dedicated to weaponry can now be dedicated to social causes, and, and a lot of uh, fear all of a sudden can be quieted down because we no longer have to fear each other. So it's, it, you know, something great could come out of this horrible beginning. And that's why the other title that I have for this sermon is A Wasted Opportunity. A Wasted Opportunity. So he's offering, you know, he's saying, look at all these things that can happen, all the great things that can happen through this and he's uh, making his appeal 
to um, these, uh, these people about all the valuable things that he, he's, he's, uh, he's offering them the world. Then Shechem himself speaks, said to Dinah's father and her brothers, guys, let me find favor in your eyes. Forgive me. Hey, look at me with kindness and forgiveness. May I find favor in your eyes. Let me, uh, I, I, will give you, I will give you whatever you ask. Make the price for the bride and the gift I am to bring as great as you like. Again, a moment of a cultural uh, specificity. You know, even today in places like India and the Middle East and uh, even places like China and other parts of the world, um, you know, um, there's a dowry and families transact with each other on behalf of their daughters, especially women. Somehow they, you know, get the, they get the short end of the stick uh, in many ways. And uh, so, you know, but it is, it is families negotiate with each other. And they negotiate even today, 21st century, for the dowry and how much, you know, the, the family can provide uh, to the other family and so on and so forth. Uh, make the price for the bride and the gift uh, I am to bring as great as you like. And I'll pay whatever you ask me. Only give me the young woman as my wife. Now, I think in his mind, as you, can, you see the expression, give me the young woman as my wife, there has been an evolution. I think he's really seeing her now for what she is, his wife, a young woman. I, the way he refers to her, I think, is more complex, more, he values her more. Now, here's the, the I'm, I'm just going to relate the rest of the story. These brothers, they're seething. They are offended, rightfully so. They are angry, furious. They want vengeance. They want revenge. So um, they don't reveal what their feelings, the true feelings are. And so they set a trap for this young man and for his entire family. And they say, okay. You know, there's only one problem. You know, we are Israelites. We believe in circumcision, and it's a very important thing to us. We, will not, we cannot have relationship with you. We cannot have intimacy. We cannot, become, we cannot become part of your family unless you circumcise yourselves. And um, then we can intermarry, and we can become as one family. You have to circumcise and, uh, you know, uh, Shechem goes to his tribe and uh, the city. They're influential, of course. And uh, all the men agree. You can see the, the urgency that they had to, you know, consummate this marriage. And so all the men agree to circumcise themselves. And they go ahead and they do it on the appointed day. And, uh, you know, circumcision is a horrible thing. It's a painful thing. Uh, and uh, these men, they circumcise themselves, and while they are healing, I don't, I don't need to get into all the, the graphic uh, details of the whole thing, when they're at the worst moment of the process, uh, Dinah's uh, uh, brothers strike, and particularly two of them, Simeon and Levi, I assume with other men, go into the city, and while the men of the city are incapacitated, they kill by the sword everybody that they can get their hands on. Verse 26 says that uh, they put Hamor and his son. They attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. They put Hamor and his son Shechem to the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and left. The sons of Jacob came upon the dead bodies and looted the city where their sister had been defiled. They seized their flocks, herds, donkeys, everything. They carried off all their wealth and all their women and children, taking as plunder everything in the houses. I mean, talk about disproportionate uh, vengeance. This is it. They killed everybody, whether they were guilty or not, whether they had anything to do with this. They, they genocide, total destruction. Um, and then I'll read just the last verse, beginning in uh, verse 30. Jacob's reaction. 
this father is indignant at what their sons have done. And they said, he said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me obnoxious to the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the people living in this land. We are few in number, and if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. But they, unrepentant, replied, should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? That was their whole retort. You know, he treated our sister that way, and we had to get revenge. So, you know, this is, it's a complex text. You can see how dense it is. And, and I, I, to me, it's, it's a, an expression of how, how the world deals with offense and conflict and um, how things should not be done, especially in the light of the values of the kingdom of God, the word of God, the example of Jesus Christ, the words of Christ, the spirit of the gospel. We do not live as people who do not know what Christ has accomplished on the cross, forgiving us of our sins, dying for us, paying the price for our mistakes, uh, abandoning what his rights were, and uh, giving them up for a greater good, forgetting about his own dignity and his own right to say, hey, I'm too comfortable in my divinity to come down and uh, work on behalf of these individuals who have forgotten God anyway, who are not interested at all in redemption. Jesus' way of doing things, the whole ethic of the gospel is completely different. You know, you can choose to live either biologically or you can choose to live divinely and spiritually. Those are the two ways. And we as Christians are called to live our life and to walk this earth as people who have been divinely inspired, divinely infused with God's love and God's energy and God's compassion. And this is what these men totally neglect. I think the world in the 21st century is urgently in need of compassion, mercy, tenderness, love, grace, um, regard for others, especially for the weak and the oppressed. I think the world is in utter need of kindness. We live in a world right now where kindness is absolutely necessary. Reconciliation is absolutely necessary. And we Christians are called to be the first to provide the example. Reconciliation needs to take place right now in our nation. I I was impacted by um, the news recently about the new uh, pact between the United Arab Emirates and Israel. You know, these Arab nations have been in enmity with Israel for decades and decades and decades. And if you go way beyond that, even before that, for hundreds and hundreds of years. But, you know, in, in, in the 20th century, definitely, there's been huge enmity. And the Palestinians have been right in the middle of this whole thing as well. And the world was shocked by this new... Um, compact that has been established between the United Arab Emirates, one of the most powerful, influential Arab nations, very rich, very wealthy nation, and uh, Israel. There have been only two other cases in the 20th century where uh, any Arab nation established peace with Israel. And you might remember one was Egypt, Anwar Sadat, who paid with his life for his uh, far-sighted uh, reconciliation with Israel, and uh, Jordan, who also established a peace treaty with Israel, who has also been criticized a lot by it. And now, years and years afterwards, all of a sudden, the United Arab Emirates has decided to also establish a a, a peace pact with Israel and a pact of cooperation. And uh, interestingly enough, I mean, and very few, even, even the most, uh, the people who would not want to 
assign any kind of uh, validity to this pact, wouldn't want to give credit, have had to admit that this is a great, great breakthrough where these two nations, and, and especially this Arab nation that is you know, going to receive all kinds of criticism from and has from its Arab neighbors who are adamantly against Israel, has decided, you know, we, we, we will establish peace. It's a complex thing. We don't have time, and it's not the place to discuss the complexity of this situation. But it is impacting how all of a sudden, you know, this Arab nation, and, and there may be others that may come, because the Arab nations have been de facto slowly working with Israel behind the, the scenes and Saudi Arabia and other nations, other Arab nations, have been working with Israel. They just haven't formalized it. But I, I was impacted by, you know, what happens when, when two en 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 enemies, you know, the Arabs are so set on, on not recognizing Israel, even acknowledging its existence, and uh, there's such hatred um, uh, toward Israel and a desire to destroy it. And this nation finally decides, you know, we're going to work with you. And everybody says, you know, this is a great opportunity for the United Arab Emirates. They can benefit from Israeli technology, commercial cooperation, uh, you know, protection from other enemies that they have, like, you know, the, uh, Iran and so on and so forth. So, you know, um, the United Arab Emirates are going to benefit greatly from this uh, peace that they have established. You know, there's, there's all kinds of things that people might say about it, but they feel strong enough about their, the benefit that they are willing to have reconciliation with Israel. And it just reminds me of how, how beautiful it is when nations and people decide to let bygones <clears throat> be bygones, and they consider the alternative, which is one of continual hatred, um, and look at the possibilities of, okay, let's, let's look at things positively. Let's look to the future. And, and let's uh, take the risk of uh, seeking peace. And I think that that's what, the, that's what the world needs, you know, right now. It is, it is that kind of spirit of, um, that looks beyond the moment, looks beyond the offense, and considers the alternative, and considers the cost of uh, retaining the sense of grievance, and, and looks at the possibility of a, a positive outlook and this is what I've been trying to say in, a, in my inadequate way throughout these sermons uh, when I've had an opportunity to speak. It's about, you know, this, this idea of living life positively and the power that there is when we embrace the grace of God in us, the power that we have as believers, uh, the, the agency that we have. Uh, and we don't have to depend on others, what they do for us or what they do against us and simply concentrate on the goodness of God, the energy of God that is in us, which is more powerful than anything else, to break through any kind of obstacle that men may put in our way. And I hope that we as believers, we, we, we can always dwell in that, the power, the positive power of God in us, to assume positive attitudes and the expectation that this God that is so great within us can do extraordinary things, and that we can afford to be generous with others. We can forgive. We can ignore whatever lack of nobility there, there may be in the souls of our adversaries because the power of God is so great in us that it can neutralize that. And sooner or later, they will be brought into affinity with us as well. And, and I believe that, that is the, the, this is what I try to communicate in all kinds of ways. Now here, these young men, they fail to see this great opportunity that is opening up before them. And they are simply dwelling on their hatred. What this guy did to their sister. And uh, they will not be swayed by anything. And you know, the Bible is full of these images of... Uh, how things were done before Christ comes into the scene. It was the law of the, you know, a tooth for a tooth, an eye for an eye. You did this to me, I will do that to you. There will be no forgiveness. And it's a shame-honor culture. You're either living in honor because you, you take good care of yourself and you don't let anybody offend you or attack you or demean you or wound you or uh, take anything from you, and therefore you are, you're living in honor. 
But if anybody does anything to diminish you in any kind of way, now you're living in shame, and therefore you need to restore your honor by killing, by taking away something from the other person, by neutralizing them. That is the, prime, the, the binary way that the world lives in. It's just I, one or the other, one, zero, that's it. And the, the, the gospel brings us into another, invites us into something else, something richer, something more complex. We bring God and, and, and uh, visionary uh, ways of looking at the world and, and we, we bring a feminine, if you will, sensibility into the picture. What you see in this is, is this masculine world here of men controlling, men, you know, uh, giving out what needs to be given out. Women don't figure. You know, I think women, God bless God for having invented them. I cannot think of a world just run by men. It would be the messiest place in the universe. It would be, it would be hell on earth. And uh, women are that other side of God that God chose to express himself through. And together, men, the, the sensibilities that men bring, the very specific sensibilities that we men bring, that are, they cannot be substituted. They're complemented and, and uh, rounded out and embellished by the, the sensitivity of women, the capacity to see things 360 degrees, their willingness to be uh, nurturing and, and to not let themselves be governed just by aggressiveness and their willingness to sacrifice themselves. This is what Christ, Christ in a way is like, a, it, it's, and again, this is, I, I say this purely not as a theological statement, but Christ is almost like the feminine expression of Jehovah, and God is the complementary side of this God in the Old Testament, which again is a total oversimplification. I should not even say it, because I think in the Old Testament I see that God also, forgiveness and love. But God is, embodies both a quote-unquote feminine quality and a masculine quality in himself. And this is why men and women are an expression of the completeness of God. And we should aspire in our own lives to incorporate both the masculine and the feminine. This is why I think it's so important for men, for children to grow in a home where they can watch, they can see both of these energies expressed from the day they are born and learn how to incorporate them into their personality so that they, both masculinity and femininity can express themselves in their being. And this is why men and women, you know, in our marriages, we should let our wives have free reign and expression of, what, of their richness and what they have. Because if we don't, we're shortchanging our children. And we're shortchanging ourselves, by the way. You know, marriage is this dialogue of the male and the female working together, enriching each other, complementing each other, learning from each other, correcting each other, sometimes chafing against each other. But out of that dance emerges something beautiful, which is a complete human being, incorporating into themselves both the male and the female qualities of God. And God is not sexual. His maleness and his femaleness are not sexual, but they're energies that, that express themselves in the universe. Long story there, and that's, I didn't get, come here to talk about that at all. But the, the, you know, the sadness of this story is that this is, this is male energy dominating. And look at the, the mess that they create. Dinah is out of the picture. Dinah's mother doesn't figure at all either. It's the men who talk, the men who act, the men who offend, the men who correct, and women are nowhere to be seen. That's the world, you know, this masculine energy. Let me just, uh, I may not even get into the total uh, narrative here, but that's okay, because I think what I have to say has value in itself. I think one of the, uh, you, you have heard me often um, speak in ways that may, may sound like I am not... Um, cognizant enough of, um, you know, the negative sides of American evangelicalism and of the conservative side, because I, I do, I, I suppose I have to put myself in some category, and I hate when to, uh, to call myself a conservative, because I, don't, I think that that cheapens what I am, and it diminishes what I am. I'm not a conservative, I'm not a liberal. I believe that I try to live out the biblical synthesis, and the biblical synthesis will sometimes 
speak to the conservative, sometimes they will speak to the liberal, um, and uh, sometimes people will accuse you of being liberal, and sometimes they'll accuse you of being conservative. That's why Jesus, you know, he was accused of being all kinds of things by everybody, depending on where they place themselves. He could seem conservative at some points, and other times he could seem liberal. That's why liberals love Jesus and conservatives love Jesus as well. It's because he has both sides. And I think that if you are truly ex expressing the biblical synthesis, you will sometimes feel, you will sometimes seem to be too conservative and sometimes too liberal. And I, I think that's, you know, I, I chafe under the labels that people try to put me on. I'm a Trumper, you know, or whatever you call them. I'm a conservative. I'm not, you know, so this is a long preamble to say that, um, you know, I think one of the things that I lament about the present uh, leader that we have in the White House, and I respect other things about him, is that masculine, that raw masculine energy that he somehow is only capable of projecting. The feminine side, I mean, is, is lacking and I lament that because I think that he could do so much good if he would somehow uh, cultivate his feminine side a little. But, uh, you know, President Trump is all male. And many times the conservative wing of America is, is, all, is male as well. And uh, I think people need... Um, uh, the, the tenderness of the female every once in a while expressing itself in their leaders. How good it would be right now for America to hear the consolation that, that we need in this time of, uh, of great stress from our main leaders. It's not that we're asking them to be a pastor, but, I mean, you know, uh, children need, not to put ourselves in that category, but children need the affirmation. I've had to learn here I'm going to be very autobiographical. I've had to learn, and I'm still trying to learn, to be expressive toward my daughters and my wife. I've had to cultivate. For me, tenderness is an acquired taste, let me tell you. I've had to learn. I can more easily express affirmation toward strangers or people who I have a lot of distance with. But those that are closer to me, I have a hard, I have a hard time. And I know that they need that. They require that. I've had to slowly <laughs> cultivate that side of me, even though it feels like sometimes like I'm taking my, my nails and, and going like this in a chalkboard. It, it's something that is totally against my, it is alien to me. Um, there are other expressions that I have for love, and that's not you know, necessarily those words of affirmation. Uh, you know, for, take it from somebody who, again, does have to take a couple of aspirin to keep his masculine side in check. Um, but I, I do lament the fact that, um, you know, uh, that in America right now, uh, yeah, there is no, there, there is, there isn't that dimension of the tenderness and, and the generosity, the kindness that needs uh, to take place. It's, unfortunately, we have is the surgeon with a scalpel cutting, and that, that is necessary many times. Many times you need a surgeon to come in and do violence to the body. And uh, in those cases, you know, it doesn't really matter whether the surgeon is a tender man or not. And many times what I do see is that, surgically speaking, this nation has been in need of certain things and has been provided. But I wish that surgeon could speak also words of tenderness and be more compassionate. I think the right conservative America has been so ruthless at times, has been so unjust, has been so abusive, has been so disregarding of the weak and, and, and the oppressed that we need to, we need to find you know, that, that, that voice. Conservative America needs to find gentleness and generosity um, as, a, as, a, as a part, as a corrective, for the time that we are in. And uh, please never underestimate the importance of that. I, I had a rich dialogue with a pastor from Puerto Rico just uh, recently, just this weekend as a matter of fact, about my message that I preached on uh, the Puritans for the, the 4th of July weekend, I think it was. 
And, um, you know, she, she's a liberal, and she knows that, and she may be hearing me right now, and I have nothing to hide. She's a good friend and a very intelligent, well-educated woman. And, um, you know, she addressed me with great honesty and a great respect also regarding my words about the Puritans. And, you know, she has certain things to say that I, I responded to her, and we, we, I think, it, if anything, it affirmed our, our friendship even more. But, um, you know, she said about that, about, uh, you know, that I wasn't, I wasn't acknowledging, for example, all the errors of the Puritans that they had committed, you know, with respect to the Indians and the Native American peoples and so on and so forth. And I, I understood that, and I wrote to her back, and I, I tried to massage and nuance my uh, statements. Um, but I, I am aware that sometimes it might seem that um, I am sort of more on the conservative side and I want to let you know that I am very much aware of all the injustices that have been committed by this nation. I am very much aware of um, all the correction that needs to take place and uh, that we do need to have more of that generosity in our nation. What's going to save our nation is going to be more of that forgiving spirit on one hand and on the other hand that spirit that says I have been wrong. I want to make things right. I want to make amends. And, and this attitude of recognition of those who are weak, those who are poor, those who are uneducated, those who are in the, in the throes of their suffering and, and all the things that have happened in their past, and they need to find the way out, and they need a hand, a paternal, maternal hand to bring them back up. And I lament the fact that in America, you can't have both in one incarnated, in one party, in one, one individual. For me, the ideal thing would be for, for someone with great strength and, and, uh, and, and great understanding and, and a mind that sees clearly, but also possessed of gentleness and tenderness like Jesus. You know, it's that sound mind that Paul speaks about. God has not given us a spirit of cowardice, but of power, of love, and a sound mind. I was speaking with Bolivar the other day about those three qualities, and maybe someday I'll have a chance to speak about what God meant by that through Paul. The sound mind. You see, you need the balance. You need the balance of a sound mind that sees things surgically, that sees things clearly, that understands what needs to be done, what organ needs to be removed, what things need to be cut, what assets need to be put into the body to heal it and to purify it, but at the same time, love that, uh, that mollifies, that, that uh, smooths out that surgical intervention. Uh, you need power. You need love right in the middle. And you need a mind that sees clearly. All that we have sometimes is just the mind that sees clearly, that says, eat your spinach, that's what you require. But boy, how necessary it is to have the other side, the gentleness of Christ as well. That some, you know, it is that balanced mind that can speak at times clearly and, and call truth for what it is and say things as they need to be said and at the same time that manifests regard for the feelings of others, the needs of others. This is lacking in America, utterly lacking and we're left simply fighting on either, either side. And, and the nuance is lost because nuance is not something that most people have or are capable of uh, expressing. You know, and then we need good leadership that will guide us in that balance, that will teach us how to do that. Enlightened leaders who will say, hey, this is what needs to be done. I don't know if you, if you don't like it, you know, that's okay. But at the same time, but I love you, and, and I understand where you are, and I want to work with you and bring you slowly into a new thing and to exercise as much authority as is necessary, but at the same time have that gentleness. That's, that's what I see in Jesus. I mean, I see his manliness. I see his courage. I see his clarity. I see his capacity to call evil, evil in the face of evil. And I, at the same time, I see him on the cross bleeding for me who deserve judgment and condemnation. And it is the balance that, you know, we, we need to attain in our times. 
I've, I've, I seem like I've strayed far from my topic, and I, I will end shortly, but I haven't. You see that I'm hovering around this complexity here. I, I'm lamenting in this passage the primitiveness of these men who are, they, 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 they only have one, they play only one, one chord, the chord of vengeance and the chord of violence. They cannot bring another chord or two of forgiveness, of intelligence, of seeing the possibilities, of maybe inquiring about their sister. How do you feel, Dinah, about this? Would you like to marry this guy? I mean, what, what do you think? People, I'm gonna, one of the questions I'm going to ask God when I get up there is, what, what, what would Dinah have said if they had asked her? Um, I, I, I personally suspect, given the, the whole tone of the passage and so on, and that's what good reading is, critical reading is, uh, reading between the lines, uh, reading what is, what is not said and what is said. I believe that this young man genuinely was repentant of what he had done and that Dinah had forgiven him and wanted to be with him and wanted to have children with him. And uh, in a few years, that whole episode would have been forgotten. But she was not asked. She was not taken into account. She was not considered. These young men were simply interested in what they felt. It was the most selfish action of all. They didn't care whether Dinah now had to remain, you know, without a husband for the rest of her life, disgraced permanently. Nobody wanted to marry this disgraced young woman. They killed her as well. This is what vengeance does. This is what uh, raw grievance and resentment does. It distorts the one who engages in it and who sustains it and nourishes it. It is the first one that is destroyed. This is why forgiveness is an absolute necessity for believers. God has made us understand that resentment kills me first. Resentment damages me first. It's not the person that I hate. It's not the person that I resent. I should forgive not for the person that I'm forgiving, for myself. Because resentment is, a, is an acrid, foul-smelling substance that even though somebody put it in me, it damages me while I keep it in there. And I got to get rid of it because it, it's, it's infecting my entire body. That's what we need to forgive. We forgive out of necessity. We forgive out of uh, clinical deciding. And these men were not capable of doing that. They, they simply had to, have, had, they had to have their vengeance. They had to have their blood. They had to have their death. And they don't care about anything else. We should not be like that, people of God. The Bible calls us to a different. Read this week if you can for the whatever time, whatever time you've done it before. Philippians chapter 2. I'll leave you with that. I'll just read it and, and let you go. This is what Christ calls us. And, and that passage is so, so rich. We should make it the object of our meditation over and over again. Because this is what would have saved Dinah. This is what would have saved Shechem. This is what would have saved the people of um, uh, that tribe. And, and, and by the way, do you know that when uh, Jacob, the father of Simeon and Levi, who did this crime, uh, is dying on his deathbed, when all the sons come to uh, Jacob, he curses Simeon and Levi. He blesses others of his sons. But Simeon and Levi were cursed by Jacob, even in his deathbed. Jacob reminds them of what they did and how they killed innocent people and how their anger just festered and exploded in the most horrible ways. They, 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 their, their lineage was darkened by this action. Jacob, uh, you know, did not uh, forget what his two sons had done, even in his deathbed. And this is what happens. You know, you, our lives are defiled by resentment, we, we should not live, we should always be inquiring in ourselves, have I cleansed myself from the latest offense? Have I forgiven enough? 
and is my life somehow distorted by resentment? And if you, if you are somehow, somebody has offended you in the past, has violated your rights, right now I ask you to go deep inside yourself and say, Lord, I forgive. I will no longer be gover governed by resentment. I cleanse myself from anything that uh, distorts the way I relate to another race, another person, another memory, whatever it is. Because memories are as powerful as uh, actual human beings. If somebody has offended you in the past, and I'm going to include myself in that call right now, may I ask you to forgive right now. In Jesus' name, forgive your offender. Cleanse yourself. Let it go. Let it go. It's, 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 not, it's not for you, for his sake or her sake. It's for your sake that you're doing it. And you're doing it because the Bible says that if you don't forgive those who have offended you, you cannot be forgiven. It's a law of the Spirit. And so right now, Father, we choose to forgive those who have offended us, those who have violated us, those who have done wrong to us. We embrace the Spirit of Christ. Lord, we will live in love. We will live in forgiveness. We will live in the freedom of letting go of offense and we choose to live in celebration of all that we have received from Jesus we are rich we're wealthy and therefore we can afford to uh, give a few measures of grace because we have we have received infinite great grace we live in grace so this morning I forgive I forgive I forgive Jesus help me to If there's anything in me, anything that has not been resolved, anything that has not been taken care of, take me to that deep, deep place where I need to discover. And right now I free myself from that. I choose to live in the freedom of Christ, in the freedom of being wealthy, being infinitely wealthy and having so much capital just to give away and to write off any debt. I forgive those who have offended me and I celebrate Christ's forgiveness upon my own life. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Let us live in your freedom this morning. Hallelujah. Do you feel that freedom right now in Jesus' name? Eh? Let, let's live like that every day of our lives. We celebrate God's goodness. I won't read the passage. Read it yourselves. Chapter 2, Philippians. Let there be the same spirit in us that there was in Jesus Christ who didn't take any of his rights as something to cling on to but just gave them away that we might be saved and God blessed him as a result and elevated him to a name that is above all names may we experience the same thing as we choose to forgive this God who will then lift us to a new height a new level we thank you for what you have done through Jesus Christ in his name amen and amen praise the Lord